Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to keep your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. Those are verses 33 to 40 of Psalm 119, verses 25 to 48 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the book of Job. Again, this is more of Job's response to Bildad, um, chapter 14, the first 22 verses there. Also in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 47 to 59, and then Acts 12, verses 18 to 25. So we're going to see more of the the response of Job, which is that um, God's great, and he can do anything he wants to do. There's nothing that can keep him, and, and we are nothing in his eyes. And again, this is bad theology. We are the apple of his eye. What is man that you're mindful of him? Job has even said that. But he said it in a different way than David said it in Psalm 8. He's questioning the value of man. And, and David, in Psalm 8, is marveling at the role and status of man. It's a very different way of asking the question. And here we're going to see it with Job, uh, how he is questioning the value of man in the grand scheme of things, particularly in God's eyes. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? I mean, he, David, when he marvels at the way God relates to mankind, when he says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you visitest him, he's marveling at, at the goodness of God and the love of God for those who are created in his image. Here, Paul is taking, or not Paul, Job is taking sort of a, an Ecclesiastes-ish look at man that, that hey, that, that we don't last very long. We're not even worth considering in the grand scheme of things. Why in the world do you just bring judgment on me? Why, why is it your intention and your delight to find things in my life that deserve punishment. This is, a, you see what I'm saying? It's a bad, bad image of God that, it, that he's exposing in himself here. <clears throat> Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There's not one. Well, there is one. And his name was Jesus. And he did it all the time. He touched the woman with the issue of blood, or she touched him, actually, and, and made her clean. He touched lepers and made them clean. He raised people from the dead, which is the ultimate uncleanness a dead body is. And, and he made them clean. He took the demon-possessed man in, in the land of the Gerasenes and made him clean. So there is one who can do that, and it's God alone who can do that. And he can do it by pronouncement. He can do it by the blood of Jesus. He can wash robes in blood and make them white. So there is one who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. And it's God's desire and delight to do that very thing. And all we have to do is believe in his goodness. His goodness shown in the face of Jesus coming to die on a cross in order that we might be reconciled to God. So that's how a clean thing can come out of an unclean thing. 
since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. In other words, I feel your hand so heavy upon me, your heavy heaviness and judgment upon me that I can't imagine anything good coming from your gaze being on me. For there's hope for a tree, if he be cut down, that it'll sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. So sometimes you can cut a tree down, and then suddenly, when it receives the nutrients of the soil, out of that stump of the ground will begin to suddenly become a new growth in there and, and he's, he's saying that's that's yes i've seen this <laughs> he said but in contrast a man dies and is laid low man breathes his last where is he in other words a tree can look dead and yet new life can come with it but it's not so with a man no no when he dies that's the end of all things hmm. well that that's not what happened with jesus so as waters fall, fail from a lake and a river wastes away and is dry and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused from his sleep. So he's believing in resurrection, but, but only at the end of all things. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Then you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. At least if I were in the underworld, you wouldn't care. David in Psalm 139 says, if I go down there, even you're, you are even there. And we're told that Jesus went down to hell, to the place of the dead, after, in those days, between crucifixion and resurrection, preached the gospel to those who are in chains. So, no, even if you're there, you're not beyond God's love, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? Yes. All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. That's exactly what he does in Jesus. He covers over our iniquity with Jesus' blood, and those sins are sealed up and put away as far as east is from west. God doesn't remember those things. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones, the torrents, wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. It's this erosive and corrosive process. Every time I sin, whenever there's any sin in me, you, you destroy my hopes because you come against me, and there's no hope because I'm just a man. And what is this life? He's asking two questions, basically. What, what, what is the meaning of man, and what is the meaning of this life? And he doesn't see anything good in that because he's still not perceiving the goodness of God. He's only perceiving the greatness of God and that God is righteous judge. And one of the things that Jewish uh, rabbis will teach is, is that um, there's, there's two aspects to God's character. And one of those is his righteousness, which, which must be dealt with. But the other is mercy. And so they see these sometimes as, as masculine and feminine uh, characteristics. And so that they see these two sides of God. And sometimes we as Christians can, can see it that way too. We can, we can look at good cop, bad cop. Think God, God, the Father is bad cop. Jesus is good cop. That's not the case. They're one and the same. 
they're of one substance with one another. And so we perceive them to be different, and we struggle with, with that, and we struggle with our theology. We struggle with what is the meaning of, of, of mankind and what is the meaning of this life because of that. Because we have this image of God, that, that he's this stern taskmaster just waiting for us to make a mistake. And that's not how God relates to his children. He knows we're going to make mistakes. He sent his son to die for those mistakes we call sin. So it's not that he, he is looking just for an opportunity to judge us and wreck things for us. No, he, he's, he's working good in our lives, whether we see it that way or not. We've got to get the eyes of Joseph right, who can say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. It's, it's important that we get to that place. He says, you prevail forever against him, man, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons came to honor, and he doesn't know it. They're brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. And we tend to be exactly that way. And that's one of the things that pain and suffering can do in our lives. It can open us to see that other people are suffering as well. And it can, it can move us to take pity on all people and to not judge. Because we know that we're good at hiding our own pain and hiding from our pain and hiding behind our pain. We're good at all those things at various times in our lives. And yet we don't give other people that same grace to say, I don't know what you're struggling with, and that might be the cause of what's going on here, and praying for those people. And so Job sees it that way. In the gospel, um, Jesus is still speaking with these Jews in Jerusalem, and, and he's already said to them that you're of your father the devil. And then he goes on to say, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you don't hear them is that you're not of God. This is, again, very similar to the conversation that he had with Nicodemus, that you don't understand these things because you haven't been born again. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Oh, yeah, yep, yep, you hit it right on the head, right? So why are they saying this? Again, yesterday they they, they suggested that we're not born of sexual immorality, and the suggestion was, but the way we understand it, you were, or you might have been at least, because we're not believing your origin story. And so here they say, are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan? Well, why would they say that? Well, it's because of John 4. It's because of his uh, engagement with the Samaritans. And so they've heard that. Obviously, they've heard the story. And it's an offensive statement to make. At least they think it's offensive. Jesus doesn't take it that way, though. You're a Samaritan that you have a demon. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. He didn't bother to even address the issue of being a Samaritan. He just let that go and moved on. That's not a serious charge. They know it's not a serious charge. It's just this little subtle, not or not so subtle, actually, dig uh, and suggestion. He said, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. Huh? Wait, what? The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. And here they're going to ask him the same question that the Samaritan woman at the well asked him uh, in, in a different way. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? Her question was, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? So they're tracing their lineage back to Abraham and saying, are you greater than him, who died? 
and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And they've already asked him, who are you? And he's told them, I'm the son of the father. I came from above. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. In other words, I'm not going to proclaim myself. I'm not here to proclaim myself. I'm here to proclaim him. He's the one who will glorify me. So I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm still not seeking my own glory, no matter what you say about me. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God, but you have not known him. Now, he's getting really clear. My Father is the one you say he's our God, but you haven't known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. So I know him, and the proof that I know him is that I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham, who's been dead a few thousand years? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am Uh Uh-oh, now he's claiming that he's been around since the beginning of time, since before Abraham, and then ends with, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. It's a continued existence, not I'm reincarnated. No, I am. He's speaking God language here, ego me is Yahweh. Ego me are the Greek words that say I am. and he, He's saying ego me, uh, which is translated back into Hebrew as Yahweh. He is making himself clearly one with the Father here. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Um, clearly, they understood exactly what he had said there. And he didn't walk it back any more than he walked back what he was saying in um, John 6, to the people there about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he, he's not being misunderstood. They're understanding him personally. They've just decided in advance this can't be true. This, this doesn't make any sense that you were God incarnate, that you came from above. In spite of the fact the story was there of his origin. But they have rejected this. They rejected it completely out of hand. Don't believe it at all. They know his mother and father are. Well, except... We've heard a rumor that it might not be your father. It's a, it's a powerful, powerful argument that Jesus is making here, but he's asking them to believe something that they've already determined. This can't possibly be. There's no such thing. This, the incarnation of God on earth is too much for them to accept. It, and, it, and that's an understandable thing. They're looking for this Messiah who would be the son of David, not directly the Son of God, not God incarnate, man divine. It's a, it, it, it's a hurdle that's too much to accept the, the possibility that it's true that God came to earth, that he could mix with humankind. It is something that's too good to be true at some level, but it's also too frightening <laughs> to be true. But, but Jesus points to the Father as the judge, Because he's already said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but through him the world might be saved. So we're seeing those two aspects or characteristics of God that that I mentioned earlier that the rabbis teach, this one of justice and the one of mercy. But it was God who sent Jesus to show us his mercy, 
So it's not two faces of the same God. These are two aspects of God. And, and so when we get the wrath of God was satisfied, that's an important concept in, in theology. And that's the reason that um, the Gettys and Stuart Townen, who wrote In Christ Alone, refused to let the Presbyterian Church change that language from the wrath of God was satisfied because they said that's important, that work of atonement and that work of propitiation that worth of a pe- work of appeasing the wrath of God can't be let go of. Because when we let go of the, the idea of the wrath of God and the judgment of God, then we're in, we end up worshiping a false God. In the um, Acts passage today, remember yesterday Peter had been set free by, an, by the angel of the Lord who came in and, and released him from the Roman prison. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered them that they should be put to death. Then he, Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea, which is the, 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 the main seat, and spent time there. So he put the sentries to death. And remember, going forward, we're going to be in, in 16, we're not going to see the Philippian jailer put to death when Paul and Silas are set free because they stay. They don't leave. Peter Peter leaving the prison means that the sentries have to be put to death for, for they are to blame. And it's not to do with blame. It is not the actual way of looking at it. The, the way to look at it is is what actually happened here. And, and Herod couldn't possibly believe the story of an angel did all this stuff. And so what, what use would it have been to have fought against the angel? He just thinks they were derelict in their duty. Well, there's a, there's a much greater explanation for what happened than their dereliction. So he goes down to Judea, from Judea to Caesarea, and spends time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, the uh, chamberlain is, is basically the treasurer over the household of Herod. So they asked for peace because the country depended on the king's country for food. In other words, we can't afford to be crossways with Herod because we're going to starve to death if we don't. And remember that we had seen the church in Antioch had, had gotten a prophecy from Agabus that there was going to be a worldwide famine, and so they were providing for the brothers in Judea because of this famine that was prophesied. They believed so much in the prophecy that they were willing to go out on a limb in advance to provide for the people. And so here we see the people of Tyre and Sidon who, who are not producing the food that they need now going to Herod and trying to make peace with him so that they don't starve during this time of famine. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. They're, they're trying to curry favor with Herod. They know that he has the power to grant them uh, good or to continue uh, to be angry with them. And so they're trying to curry favor with him so he'll do good things. And again, th- this is, is, is that our approach and our understanding of God, which is Job's understanding here in the beginning, and it's his friend's understanding of God here in the beginning of, of the book as well. And, and that is, so they say it's the voice of a God in order to flatter him, in order that he'll, he'll be kind to them and he will, he will provide for them in this way. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, Flavius Josephus tells a story about the death of Herod that, that begins right here. 
begins in this place. Now, there's more to it than this. In, in Flavius Josephus' story, he looks up supposedly and sees an owl there. And before that, an owl had been an omen for good. And, and now Herod sees it as an omen for bad. And he realizes what he has done is he has not given glory to God. He accepted the glory. He, in a way that we see later when Paul and Barnabas have an opportunity at Lystra, when, when they're worshipped as gods, they immediately say, no, 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 no. As soon as they understand it, nope, this is Lyconian, but hey, somebody understood what was being said here, and we will not allow you to do that. In the same way that Cornelius falls to his feet, to his knees to worship Peter, and Peter says, uh-uh, stand up, I'm a man. I'm not going to receive worship. Here, Herod doesn't. And Flavius Josephus tells us that, that shortly thereafter he did die. So Flavius Josephus is an historian, and he's not a Christian historian. He's a Jewish historian. And so he says this is exactly what happened to Herod, and, and he gives this as the precipitating factor. And so we need to be careful <laughs> that when we praise God, that we're praising him strictly for his goodness and his greatness, not in order to get something from him, that we're not using flattery in order to, to get what we want. No, because he's worthy because he alone is worthy, is the reason that we give him praise and honor and glory. And, and so now we see that he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod, the king, the one that everybody feared, died, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So this is John Mark, the same one that was mentioned yesterday in the lesson when Peter goes to the house of the mother of John, whose other name is Mark. So they go, Barnabas and Saul go, and they bring with them John, whose other name was Mark. We know that they separate later in, in Acts 16. That's when Paul and Silas began to travel around together. But here, between now in Acts 12 and, and um, then in Acts 16, it'll be Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. But, but we have to get past the idea that, that there's some one-to-one correspondence between how we act and our sin and and God's blessing in our lives. No, it's his desire to bless us, but it's also his desire to change us into his likeness and for us to become more and more like his son. And the only perfect man who ever lived died on a cross. Was that injustice? No, it was actually God's mercy on display, his mercy towards sinners, that he sent his son to die on that cross, and Jesus willingly accepted that punishment out of love for us. So the greatest act of injustice ever done in the history of the world is that which brings life and hope to those of us who deserve that death.